You know that a man dies if he loses five pints of blood. The time is now. The place is the space between your ears. The people are lizards, dissecting the finest in science fictional and fantastical literature for all your auditory pleasures. You are now listening to Lizard People, Dear Readers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers, the science fiction and fantasy book podcast by Lizard People for Lizard People and other reptilian humanoids. I am, of course, George Chimples, and with me as always is Peter Paris. Howdy, howdy, howdy. He is a cowboy and Nathan Edwards. I am also a cowboy. You can see by my outfit. All right. And this is episode number I forget. And we will be discussing the book, the self-proclaimed silk punk book, The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, which is book number one in the Dandelion Dynasty series. That This is the only one that exists so far. Is it a um, trilogy? I don't know how many they're going to do. Um, Everything's a trilogy. It's a trick question. Yes. Before we get started, though, I would like to say thank you to Major Spoilers for having us on the site. And uh, I know we've, we're reaching a lot more people now, and I'd just like to say howdy to you. And also thank you to Steven for putting the posts up when I am too busy to do that myself and picking up a lot of my slack. That is awesome. If you want to support them, um, you know, you can go through the Amazon affiliate there. But also, you should support your local used bookstore because that's a good way to get books. And Amazon is an evil empire. And I'm a little salty because my Kindle has bricked recently. So, that's that. Also, used books put food on my table. And Amazon affiliate fees put food on mine. <laughs> yeah, well. Well, well. You live in a digital sphere. I still live in meat space, as they mm, call it. Meat space. At a bit of an impasse here, aren't we, gentlemen? Oh, yep. no, apparently it's fine. Okay, cool. I, I don't know. Yeah, sure. We can be. Um, we might be at more of an impasse as we as we delve into Ken Liu's The Grace of Kings. Um, so should we do a uh, a summary? Yes, let's. Okay, yes, that's why don't you do that, George? me to, pardon me, find a list of the characters because it is a rather large list of characters. And I forget a lot of stuff about it. So, it takes place on an archipelago um, called Dara, which is, there's one big main island where there's, uh, I believe, seven kingdoms, and then there's a couple of other islands kind of scattered around where they've got different holdings. And it's recently been united under the, before it was seven warring states, and now it has been united under the banner of this Emperor Mapadere. How did you guys feel like pronouncing that? I, I went with Mapadere. Same. Yeah. So Emperor Mapadere is the first emperor of the Seven Islands of Dara, and uh, he's fought a long, hard war, oppressed a lot of people, moved people around, and taken over. And so we get a brief pro prologue where we have one of the main characters um, 
the, the king is the emperor has been going on this tour of all of the islands and sampling all of their food and doing all of this stuff and this young boy is skipping school to watch the emperor go by and this dude flies by on a kite and starts dropping bombs on him which is pretty excellent and then the kite flies away and people are like oh the emperor is mortal and then um we skip ahead to um i don't know 10 15 years maybe under the empire people are getting upset because there's taxation their traditions are being broken down people are being forcibly moved throughout the island there's a lot of these building projects that the emperor is you know using the taxes to pay for and then also conscripting a large number of people I so say they're, they're essentially forced labor projects yeah corvies and you know some of that's to his own edification like building a giant palace and um then you know they're building uh roads and, and and other things like that people start getting upset they don't like their families getting pulled away there's also a lot of um what's the word i'm looking for there's a lot of anger towards his people and the island that he came from is is more of a backwater and so there's a lot of resentment building towards them so people start breaking the law banditry starts coming about um and so he i forget when he dies it doesn't really matter at a certain point he dies and his young child takes over and is basically kind of being maneuvered by these two regents who are um kind of ruling things in his stead while he's just kind of whiling away his time in the meantime we come upon our two main characters the first one is named kunigaru who is a uh um i think he's kind of like middle class he, he's the one who saw the emperor getting bombed as a child and he he's like a, he's a bit of a layabout a gangster layabout ne'er-do-well yeah. but he's had an education but he's basically a grifter and he's able to like kind of fast talk his way through things and doesn't really do much other than kind of drink and party but he's good-hearted at his core and through a series of events he ends up working as kind of like a tax collector and then running these corvies and, and you know these these prison gangs basically and then realizes these are bad things ends up kind of going and being a rebel off in the woods and he kills the snake and people start talking about these, uh, um, you know, people start talking about him like he's a big deal. On the other side, you've got Matazindu who is an heir to this clan, this warrior clan that were the grand marshals for one of the kingdoms. And all of them were killed except for this kid and his uncle who were miraculously escaped. And so he's being raised by his uncle to be a martial leader, which is aided by the fact that he's like eight foot tall and he has double pupils. And so he's being bred to, and he comes, you know, comes from a high lineage. So he's being bred to be this, um, you know, ass kicker basically. And so he starts kind of doing things off on the other side. So that's, they're, they're going on, they're going on to bigger and greater things as the story progresses. Then there's this actual rebellion that's spurred by these two, um, Levy workers who basically hide a uh, prophecy that one of them is destined to be king or emperor in a fish. The other one finds it and is like, oh, look what this note says inside of this fish. And people are like, oh, that must be real. And they lead a rebellion, which ultimately fails, but it provides the sparks that allow Kinugaru and Matazindu to kind of come to the forefront. And as the story progresses, and Nathan, who I know has not finished the book for reasons we will discuss later, what ends up happening is 
there are other leaders, the other king, deposed kings kind of start running the revolution. But the ones who are the best at what they do are basically Kunigaru, who is more of a politician. He's more merciful. He's more savvy. Um, who's able to kind of win battles through trickery and through diplomacy and kind of inspire people. And then there's Metazindu, who's just this like warrior demigod who just runs around just killing people and massacring, you know, conquered places. And they really like each other. But at a certain point, they end up um, being manipulated to kind of distrust each other. Matazindu ends up actually taking over everything and exiling Kunigaru to a small little place. Then Kunigaru is able to, um, you know, rebuild his forces, eventually takes over and becomes the new emperor of a new dynasty. Uh, in case you haven't read the book yet, um, that was a whole bunch of spoilers for it. So just be warned about that. Anything important I left out? Um, well, your giant list of characters sure didn't get filled out much. Oh, there's a whole bunch of other people. I don't really care. There's the Regent Name Empire. Them. There's Kanigur Kunigaru's wife, the long-suffering Gia. Kunigaru gets a second wife later on. I was going to say, his first wife. Whoa. Yep. What was the um, the guy who was flying the kite? He comes back in the book. Henry Kitefire? Yes. He, what is his name? He's a scholar of some repute. Uh, is this different from the other scholar of some repute who killed the other other scholar of some repute because the other other scholar yes. has more repute? You're yeah. thinking there's there so it's you're thinking what I haven't talked about. Yes, what I haven't talked about is that this story is very so. I, I said initially that it's Ken Liu presents it as you know he self proclaims it as silk punk. So what he's trying to do is create kind of a fantasy epic that harkens more towards um. Asian influences predominantly, but there's also a lot of Polynesian and, you know, a lot of more like Eastern influences consciously that he put into it. I was going to say more of a, more of an Oriental kind of take, if that word is okay to use. It's not. Okay. Um, I mean, from the perspective of, uh, the eight, from the perspective of some of the other sources that he cited as inspiration, it's got that kind of a bet to it. Yeah, he, he talks, there's some um, interviews we might get into where he talks about some of that. But it's, so so there's this, the, the idea of these scholars, they're very much bureaucrat scholars in the uh, kind of Confucian tradition where they're, this is, this, a lot of the plot, most of the plot is actually very strongly drawn from um, kind of the foundational legends of the Han Dynasty to the point where it's almost, <sighs> I hesitate to use the term plagiarism. It's kind of heavy, but like so much of the plot from the double pupiled eyes and the big guy and the guy killing the snake and the twists and turns are really just from the formation of the Han dynasty and the legends that surround that, that it's when I started reading about that, I was kind of disappointed to be like, not a lot of this is that original. Um, but anyways, there are these different scholars. And so some of the scholars, you know, work in the Imperial Palace. There's another couple, there's another wandering scholar that kind of creates some cool scientific things. Like the the silk punk part of it comes along when you've got, there's, you know, an airships and zeppelins that fly around. These guys on flying kites. At one point, Mata Zindu has this really cool moment where he's flying over a battlefield, challenging people to kite duels, essentially. That was kind of fun. Yeah, that was, like that. That was kind of good. Yeah, and there's also there's there's gods. Every I, every kingdom has its own god, except for one, which has a set of twin gods. 
and the gods kind of shuffle things around and do little manipulations as they try and get the events well, to come out in their favor. They constantly swear that they don't interfere and then immediately go interfere in various ways, as, yeah, the as reader gods are wont to do. Like they and, just straight up will walk up to the protagonists and say, you should do this, and then give them things. Well, so. Just like Starfleet, right? They don't interfere, and yet. Right. There's nothing following the and yet. It's the and yet they constantly interfere. That's what and I was yet. going with that. And yeah. yet. And yet, and yet, also, the gods are very boring and stupid. Yeah. They're, they're not great. So, the book itself... Um, I think that we all, we've talked briefly about this off mic. We all had kind of a, I think we had high expectations coming into this. Yes, I did. I did. I definitely did. I was excited for something that was not so, you know, Western fantasy, straight, like medieval Western Europe influenced. That's what really excited me about it was the chance to kind of, it presented itself as kind of like a... I don't know. He's he's not. He lives in California, so it's not like a, a Chinese author necessarily, but like a, a more Chinese perspective on like the what you might call an epic fantasy story. Well, he was born in China and immigrated when he was eleven. Oh, okay. Um, so he grew up in China. Um, you know, so that that you know, I'm sure he grew up hearing this kind of stuff. I would imagine. Um, and you, it, it's certainly a worthy goal to because. So much of fantasy has been, you know, Tolkien overshadows everything. And Tolkien is a very rooted in, as you said, Western European mythology and ideas. Well, I mean, usually you, hear fa- usually you hear fantasy and you think British accents. Right. And knights. And, and George R. R. Martin, who I think, you know, is fantastic and I love his stuff. That's he's very consciously also his main setting is supposed to basically be Western Europe. It's fantasy. Um, fantasy War of the Roses. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to get into that later because I want to compare his fantasy War of the Roses versus Ken Liu's fantasy creation of the Han Dynasty. Um, because, you know, they both consciously talk about how those were influences. But I think that George Martin does it in a very different way. Um, but anyways, yeah, it, it's it's a good thing to, you know, it, it, it was a good idea to start with. But the execution we all found a little lacking. I think that's Nathan, tell us why you couldn't finish it, aside from the fact that you're uh, currently overseeing a spawning pool of young Illuminati lizard warlords. Uh, It's true. My spawning pool is about and it's it's in its eighth and a half week and you can sort of hear it in the background. Um, Aside from that, I found the writing style incredibly annoying. And I didn't know whether this was just because it's it draws from a different literary tradition, but I think it's just bad writing. Um, again, I might get crap for this. Maybe it does draw from different styles of storytelling, uh, but the writing is bad. It is not good. It is bad. And what I did there was an example of saying the same thing three different ways. And that's a fun thing that, uh, this book likes to do. Often it will tell us something just like exposition coming from the narrator and then have one of the characters explain it back to us basically. Or yeah. it'll yeah. have it'll use the gods to have these big, as you know, info dumps. Or he'll just put big info dumps in the middle of the narration, in the middle of telling it, us about some character, introducing a character, coming up with a problem, 
telling us how he solves the problem and then telling us why he did everything that he did and his whole inner monologue the whole time and then just moving on to something else. I found it very frustrating to read to the point where I dreaded getting as far into it as I did. Yeah. And, and it's in very declarative language too, where it's very much, he felt this, he felt that way. He saw that thing. It was bad. You know, not a lot of artifice to it. I felt, um, um and it wasn't even like in a Hemingway sense. It was more of just like almost young adult kind of simple language. I was going to say, very simple it wasn't sparse by any means. Uh, but to, Nathan, no. to Nathan's point about, you know, whether he was trying to deliberately ape a, a style from a, you know, type of storytelling we're not used to. Just kind of, we were talking a little bit about, you know, whether that was the case or not before. But uh, in the when you're actually sitting there and reading it and, uh, you know, you compare it to, you know, a lot of other literature, especially genre literature, it just kind of comes off as ham-handed. Yeah, I want to read a quote from him real quick. This is coming from an io9 um, interview. Er, he did a Q&A with io9. And incidentally, I'd like to point out that we've been on a weird run of reading books that io9 has chosen as their book of the month club. And it is not intentional. It keeps happening coincidentally to the point where the next book that we'll be reading that Peter will announce at the end of the podcast oh, is uh, io9's, io9's current uh, book of the month. <laughs> oh, io9, you're killing me. I, yeah, for a lot of the podcasts that we recorded uh, earlier in the year and um, never released, we were sort of tracking Sword and Laser accidentally. Sword and Laser, really? by the way, is the first most popular science fiction and fantasy uh, book club podcast run by lizard people. Yeah, the first we're most the compared to us. Yeah, we're the compared second. to us, we're the most foremost. But it's like. Yeah, so that I think it's because we've been reading a lot of new releases, which also is not by intention. Um, it just is how it's happened to be what we're geared towards. But it's, it is kind of funny. I just wanted to comment on that. And also, I do value io9 as a source for keeping abreast of what's the new stuff that's coming out. And so kind of my expectations for this book was some of the buzz that I saw building around it on io9. But anyways, I like them. They do good stuff. Um, so this is from their, their Q&A with Ken Liu. And so someone... Asked him a question, I was struggling with a style which seems much more influenced by classical Chinese epics than any recent fantasy novels. Once I allowed myself to fall into the rhythm, the novel opened up immensely for me. What made you choose the style of storytelling? So then Ken Liu says, he talks about some of inspirations, which are the Iliad, the Aeneid, Beowulf, Paradise Lost, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Wuxia fantasies, um, and oral storytelling art forms like Pings. I don't know what that is. But then he says, it was important to me to choose a style that worked well for the type of story I wanted it to be. Let's use painting as an analogy. Just because photorealistic oil paintings are very popular, that doesn't mean that all portraits should be done as photorealistic oil paintings. Watercolors and brush paintings may well be the better choice for certain subjects. For the story I wanted to tell and the kind of feeling I wanted to evoke in the reader, I believe that the style I ended up creating was the only one that could have worked. And I think that's an interesting idea saying you want to do watercolor or brush paintings or a more impressionist kind of style. I think that's an interesting way to think about I was going to say, word. as an artistic statement, I like that a lot. But, you know, it's... Um, but the execution was lacking, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it, was, it was kind of inconstant. In, unconstant? Inconstant? What's the word I'm looking for? Inconsistent. Thank you. Much better. <laughs> yeah. Blah. Uh, yeah, it was It was just kind of all over the place. Like, some really did have a little bit of a, that almost kind of measured quality that you might see in some of the epic poetry sources he cites even when they're translated um but 
you know, it certainly wasn't consistent throughout. And, yeah. you know, there's a big, a real big gap between when, you know, people are talking and when he's info dumping. Especially. Right. And I didn't, I didn't read any of the interviews or anything. I don't know if they were even done when I started the book. I don't remember when. And I try to stay away from that stuff so it doesn't color my, my reading. It's, I was having a lot of trouble in the early going um, because of the language and because of how simplistic it was. And it was kind of not fun. And at a certain point, I w something clicked in me where I was like, you know what? This is more like a fairy tale where the motivations are very clear and basically explained to you. And it kind of just proceeds from there to there. And, you know, it's just this kind of high morality tale in a way. Um, and, you know, so it's kind of like a fable. And that's sort of, that made me enjoy it more. It didn't make me enjoy it as a, you know, enjoy it greatly. But that helped me, I think, swallow it a little bit more than um, it did for you, Nathan. Because I had the same thing where I hit a wall. But when that kind of, I was reading it and that came to me, I was like, oh, now it makes a little bit more sense. Maybe this is what he's trying to do. But it's still it's still rough reading at certain points. Yeah. Um, one thing that um, kept striking me is it reads like, like you said, like sort of young adult, um, simple language. But one thing it kept reminding me of is it reads like a novelization of a pretty decent anime or TV series. Like I would watch the series that's basically scene for scene, the book. But I think it works well it works better visually than it does on the page. And I think that's because he's of what you said before. He's, you know, telling us. And so it comes off as very didactic on the page. This is how this person felt. No ambiguity. And so if you had that on the scene, you'd have their actions. And the action was okay. The plot was pretty, was pretty all right. You know, there's stuff that's happening. There's some cool battles and um, there's some visuals that are very nice. But when you're told this is how this person feels, now they feel this different way, and now they feel this other way, and this is why they feel that way, there's no ambiguity at all. And it gets kind of exhausting because it's just someone telling you exactly what it is over and over again. So you can't, I think that kind of distances the reader from it. Whereas I think you're right, like on TV, if you had more of a nuanced, you know, you had a nuanced performance rather than an actor saying, I am angry at this person because they did this. I'm literally angry with rage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um i think you had a passage you were going to read i have a few that i'd like to read as well right um let me do you have one of yours prepared i have one pulled up go um, ahead and read yours right so now. Th this is an example of what i would consider bad storytelling um it is from one of the info dumps where the gods are talking to each other like how occasionally the claim it like jason and the argonauts would cut to all the gods around the table laughing at them um which you know as a trope i really don't mind um the gods are watching what the people are doing and commenting like that's cool i'm okay with it but this could have gone better Tututu, uh sorry tututika the ethereal goddess of amu spoke last in a voice as calm and pleasant as the flat tranquil service or surface of lake tututika the speech of the golden-haired, azure-eyed goddess with skin, the hue of polished walnut, silenced the other gods. As the youngest of you all, and the least experienced, I've never understood your appetites for power and blood. All I've ever wanted was to enjoy the beauty of my realm, and the praise of my people. Why must we always end up as a house divided? Why can't we just promise one another not to be involved in the affairs of the mortals at all? 
And then it goes on like that. It's yeah. It's a struggle for me. And I should point out, to be fair, I'm probably more critical of this than many people because I spend all day looking at words and making them better or trying to make them better. So maybe I'm just more sensitive. No, because I, I think that you, me and Peter also had the same reactions to that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's... It's just it's, it's sometimes the, the, the words are just ponderous, you know? It's not... There's no artifice there. It felt like it. It was just a slog a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's so like I'm everything gonna... was laid out in like a... In certain, a lot of places, it was almost formulaic, which I I do know is a big part of going back to the epic poems again. Like, yeah. In, that, in like the Iliad, for example, the gods are always introduced in the exact same way whenever they show up. But, you know, it's... It's not as extensive, and it's always kind of constrained to within a point that it can still be a little bit lyrical. And again, those are poems, not books, so it's different, but, you know, there you go. Yeah, I think it was missing the lyricality that it needed. It needed... The parts where it was best was when it was talking about... Some of the descriptions of things was very nice. I liked when um, when his uh, Kunigaru... His first wife is a uh, herbalist and she does some interesting things with herbs and they talk about them somewhat metaphorically. And there's this interesting thing about how, um, you know, Zindumaru or whatever is, is, is his symbol is, or Meta, sorry, Zindumata, his symbol is the chrysanthemum and how it, you know, is this mighty proud thing. But Kunigaru is more like a dandelion who floats on the wind and grows from the most unlikely places, but is still beautiful if looking at in the right way um and when she was talking about plants and things and 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 they were going in about that i thought it worked well because those were the lyrical passages i'm going to read a section here where um mata zindu is upset because uh the girl he liked uh basically murders his uncle sleeps with his uncle and then murders his uncle at the prompting of one of the gods who you know have this pledge that they will uh not affect things and then they're like hey here's a knife that you can use and slip out security and kill people i I didn't give it to you wink wink i totally did so okay here's this passage (laughs) oh gods and and what i want the, the focus for this for me is that just you know how all of this emotional content is just dumped at the reader with no feeling for it it's just this is how he feels And yet he could not deny that even knowing the falsity of her words and pretended feelings, he missed her. He had taken something of great value hidden in his heart and willingly handed it to her. And she had torn it to pieces and scattered it to the winds so that it was gone forever. Yet he did not want to have it back. He wanted only to be able to give it to her again and again. At the same time, he was racked with guilt for how he'd behaved toward his uncle. Finn had been the only surviving member of Mata's family, the closest thing he had to a father. He was the source of all Mata's dreams about the glorious past of the Zindu clan and the force that propelled him to emulate the martial deeds of his illustrious ancestors. Finn Zindu was the template against which Mata had always measured himself, the one man whose opinions on duty and honor he valued above all others. He was Mata's sole connection to the past and his most trusted guide to the future. It's like, all of that stuff, we know how he felt about his uncle. We know what his uncle's done because we've spent so many pages talking about it that, like, you don't need to re... re like he's upset that his uncle was his only pat like connection to the past. We know that because we've spent, you know, 200 pages 
knowing that. So you don't need to tell us again. It's just so it's just very ponderous. Um, that wasn't great. Um, yeah. So writing style maybe could have flowed a little bit better. I, yeah. That, that being said, I really liked a lot of the ideas that were in the book. Like there was like some what? interesting stuff in there, like, like the kites and the, uh, the silk and bamboo airships. That was cool. Uh, the armored narwhal submarines were kind of cool. If, uh, a little improbable. I like the book that, like, rearranges all of your knowledge for you to show you how you can do more things. Provided by a god. Provided by a god. It is a magic book. Yeah. Um, there's... But, I mean, there's there's lots of little nuggets like that that I did really enjoy. Yeah, and, and, I... and there's something that... Oh, sorry, keep going. No, no, that... go ahead, yeah. There's a part that Nathan didn't get to that was pretty good. Um... Rub it in. No, I'm not rubbing it in. There's, so, you know, there's this cool technology that's going on. Uh, my thing is I would have loved to have seen more of it. There were a couple of cool battles where they talked about these, um, the ramifications of these things, and they were still kind of neat. But in, in the style of, like, the emotions, a lot of the battles felt like you fight a battle with this army of this kingdom. Oh, that's done. That kingdom is done. You know, it was very easy once you conquered something to, you know, just it, kind of rolled over. The stakes weren't particularly high. It was all but very pat. One of the ways that the, the first empire is able to take over is they have these airships and they're the only ones that they've got basically the volcano that provides this gas. And they're the only ones that really have good access to the, the lift gas. And that's kind of cool. And so they fly around and their airships allow them to do things and they can fight naval battles by just dropping pitch onto things. And throughout the book, they're coming up with interesting and novel ways of dealing with these things. And they build giant kites and, at a certain point, there are these whales that have a name that I forget what it is. Krubin. Anymore, but they're Krubin. Yeah. Krubin. They're Krubins. Krubin, which are these big symbol, but they're basically giant narwhals that at one point a bunch of people ride around on, and then they basically build... The spice must flow. Things that look like narwhals <laughs> that are actually submarines. It is a super-duper dune moment when they do that. Yeah, and they also have these big tunneling... They, they develop some chemical that allows them to tunnel through things faster, and um, it's kind of cool. And then there's near the end when the when kunigaru is exiled he part of it is he's surrounded by all of he's really good at making friends and he's surrounded by all of his friends who are the best at everything he's friends with the best scholar and the best tax collector and the best uh butcher i don't know horse horse razor right and at a certain point he starts realizing hey this empire wasn't all bad it did a lot of bad things, but some of the stuff that it was doing was really good. It was breaking down a lot of these old conventions that were hardwired into the old scholarly ways of doing things that people were just like, oh, this philosopher came up with it. It must be the best. But he was like, you know what? Some of our culture should be spread around, like sharing different foods and different dances and different things. That's a good idea. Breaking down this nationalistic xenophobia is something the emperor did that's actually kind of cool. Building roads and bringing people together and kind of creating a unity and ending war, basically, those aren't bad things. What's bad is the excessive repression and taxation that he was doing, blah, blah, blah. And then he starts going a little bit further kind of when he starts realizing how important his wife is and, and how able she is that, you know, the kind of gender roles we play don't really make a lot of sense. So he starts opening up his army to women and women soldiers. And that's part of the way that he's able to come back is he basically is able to tap resources that other people don't think about. 
And at a certain point, his main general is a woman who a lot of people poo-poo her, but because she's good at what she does and has novel training techniques and a novel perspective, she's able to, you know, basically win a lot of his battles. And that was a kind of a cool element because you don't see that in a lot of things. Um, and so that was nice. I, I liked that character a lot. But at the same time, there's also like near the end of the book, everybody gets tempted to betray him and one or two people do. And then like she gets tempted and then she doesn't. And it was just this very easy scene at the end that was just like, it's like, why was it even there? It just everybody betray good. me. I fed up with this world. Yeah. Yeah. And people were constantly betraying each other back and forth in the book. Um, sometimes with good reasons, sometimes with not. But it, it, Sometimes with good reasons that were only revealed shortly before they died. Yeah, like with the, the child emperor, there are these two retainers that... Do they both want to bring the empire down? I don't remember. No, I think just one of them did. Yeah, just one of them basically wanted to kill um, the empire, but no one knew it, and then he just kind of died having sort of like helped someone kill the emperor. Well, and after he went through all this stuff, like then you they t- say right when they die, it's like, oh, but he had a reason for doing all that stuff. It's like, well, okay, yeah, too late for then sympathy. Too late for sympathy now. Way to squander right. all of the emotional impact you could have had, you know when he was actually betraying people. Yeah. And it's also weird that the, the whole kind of um, struggle between Kunigaru and, and Matazinda, that is really the whole point of the book, really only starts like halfway to two-thirds of the way through the book. The beginning part, a lot of it's taken up with this imperial intrigue in the palace and this initial rebellion with these two guys that just end up getting killed one gets killed fairly unceremoniously and the other one just gets shunted to the side and is just hanging out as kind of a minor noble in the rest of the book. So it's kind of a weird, it's a weird structure. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of characters that, that do something similar where they just kind of like float in and then float out again. Yeah. It made it hard to grasp. And it also, it made it hard to keep track of who everyone was because there was a lot of these people kind of coming in and out and the gods and everything. Well, and I mean... I don't necessarily want to be the first one to make the George George R. R. Martin comparison, but like you have a similar kind of thing in Game of Thrones where there are lots of people and some of them do have, you know, big roles to play early on and then are never heard from again, but they're set up early enough where it doesn't feel thrown at you out of nowhere and then you know, so and it sticks so it sticks with you more when they disappear. Yeah. And I think it Talking about avoiding George R. R. Martin is hard to do because you're talking about what is the preeminent fantasy right now. I was going to say, if you're, and, if you're calling out epic fantasy, it's one of the touchstones right now. Yeah, and it's like if you're talking about space opera, you're going to talk about Star Wars. It's kind of unavoidable. So I think it's... And it, there is stuff in here that I want to talk about that does involve George R. R. Martin. But I think one of the things George R. R. Martin does well is his characters are... A lot of times you don't see what they're doing or why they're doing it until maybe you get in their head. And a lot of times you just hear other people speculate as to why they're doing things. And so it creates an air of mystery. And so you want to know more about those people. But they're also a little bit more fully realized. Like aside from Kunigaru and, and Matazinda and a couple of other people that we briefly get kind of point of views. Some characters are with them the whole book and they don't really have much of anything about them. Like Kunigaru has a friend who's a really good tax collector. He likes to study. Can I tell you much else about that character? No, not really. Yeah, and he's it. got a whole cast of people like that. Well, and even if you go to the opposite end of the spectrum, and you go back to something like Homer, I mean, even then, sure, there's a lot of 
exposition, but, you know, on the other side of that coin, he doesn't spend a lot of time inside his character's heads. Like, you don't really know that Achilles is mad because it's sitting there saying, and then Achilles was very mad. He was so mad. It's like, I, you know, he, was, you he, was, he was pissed, and then he throws a, you know, you spend a chapter talking about the giant funeral games he doesn't throws it, for Patroclus, but... Doesn't it, it does begin with Sing Sing with... the Rage of the Achilles. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. It but, literally but, yeah, starts with Achilles was That is not the same as saying that Achilles no. was mad. <laughs> no, I know. It's, Achilles it's, was and, mad, bro. Well, for one thing, that's one of the things we're talking about is the lyricality. Like Sing Sing, Goddess of the Rage of Achilles. That's lyrical. Achilles was mad because his uncle had slept with his wife or whatever. That's not lyrical, and that's kind of what we get. Uh, I, I want to point out one thing that Robert... Robert Jordan. Wow, no. Um, George R. R. <laughs> <laughs> that George R. R. Martin does is that his chapters, he jumps from character to character, but each of his chapters is strictly third-person limited. You're only ever seeing through the point of view of one character. You're only seeing what they're seeing, hearing what's in their head, and then it goes to some other character. So you have the possibility of unreliable narrators, which just doesn't seem to exist in third-person omniscient. Yes. Um, and you have lack well, of information you know it's not to that say that Martin you have to write every book in third person you know or first limited. person yeah third person no, limited but, but it, it, it but you it's know better, it's, it's better it's if you don't change in the middle of what you're writing in the middle of a paragraph yeah yeah and i think martin just realizes his characters so much deeper so it makes them more interesting and yeah, the unreliable narrator narrator thing is an important bit as to why it succeeds. The other thing I wanted to talk about is with George R. R. Martin, is this is a retelling, as I said earlier, the, the formative legends of the Han Dynasty. Um, and Ken Liu does not hide that fact. It, it doesn't hide the fact, but what what is interesting to me is that you know you talk about how George R. R. Martin, you know, War of the Roses is his influence for that for, for you know song of fire and ice game of thrones what have you ice and fire right however it goes it's as far as i can tell the thing that it's about is betray the, the, the thing that they share is betrayal and all of this fascination with family family lineages and civil war but i don't think and maybe i'm wrong but i don't think that you can say oh well jamie lannister is supposed to be Richard the Third and so and so is supposed to be this. You can't really map everyone onto it because they're living in a clearly different world. Westeros is like Western Europe, but it's very much not just England. You know, to the point. It's it's There's more like Scotland. he deliberately took it and made it more of his own. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's no, I mean, Westeros Scotland. isn't like the North is like Scotland, maybe, but you know, the South is very different. Like, there's it's it's a much more different world. Whereas if you're familiar with the Han Dynasty and I say Kunigaru is supposed to be Lu Bang and, you know, Mata is supposed to be um, Zheng Yu. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing these. And you knew that story, you would be able to tell the exact plot of this book and the exact order that things happen in and who's going to betray who and who's going to be exiled where. The only difference is this has airships and islands, but the plot itself is so close and so locked down that it's it was disappointing to me to to, to go and read that. Like even the titles that, um, you know, at one point 
uh, as he starts rising through the ranks, um, Kunigaru becomes the Duke of blank. And same thing with Lu Bang. And then he becomes the Marquis of something. Same thing with Lu Bang. At some point, he gets exiled to a faraway place where he's able to marshal his forces and take over and become emperor. Same thing as Lu Bang. And that's... And like even like how they like 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 dinners that they had there's a sword there's this part where they do this sword dance and this guy is pretending to is, is going to actually try and kill him but he doesn't and it's this, this banquet that's being held by zindu that happened in the han dynasty right like that's so so exact that it feels like cheating to me so is it more exact than the X number of fantasy stories that map so closely to the 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 hero's journey, the hero of a thousand faces. Well, the hero's journey isn't. I mean, it's an arch. That's an archetype. I mean, it's not a written history of anything, or even a written legend of anything. I would say it's closer to how sort of Shannara is basically Lord of the Rings, <laughs> except that. You know the Han Dynasty stuff is uh, public domain, um, but it, it, like it's it's that close where it's the exact same setup and the same stuff is happening. Like, so Hero's Journey, I think you can tell a Hero's Journey story so differently. There's that idea that there's only six basic plots you can actually tell. Somebody and there's comes a little to bit town, of truth. Somebody to leaves that. town. Somebody hunts a beast. Is that it? No, it's no? sort of like you know. There's a quest story. There's different kinds of conflict. There's you can go to any kind of script writing or how to write a novel book, and they'll kind of lay them out for you. And mm. then the hero's journey is just one of those. So those are very foundational kinds of ideas. Um, these are like the actual nitty gritty plot points that happen over the course of the story that are just aping, um, you know, something else. I'm trying to think of any something else that does it. There's a, uh, Glenn Cook is a writer I really like. And he wrote a book, I think called The Dragon Never Sleeps, maybe. I might be wrong about the title, but it's basically, he takes Das Boat and he sets it in space. And instead of the Oh, Passage ships, at Arms. Passage at Arms. Instead of the ships, you know, being submarines, they just heat up and everyone kind of gets sleepy. But beat for beat for beat, story beat, character-wise, it maps entirely into Das Boat. And it's not, you know, that just seems like a very easy thing to do. I once read a... Uh... A sci-fi story that was an exact beat-for-beat ripoff of Stephen Crane's occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Yeah. Do you remember that one? No. Nope. Uh, basically, a a Civil War guy is... Oh, no, I know I know occurrence at Owl Creek. Okay, yeah, no. I don't know no. the story you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it was basically that, but in space. And I don't know which one it is, but I bet I could find it. But it's well, I've really seen a couple different things that steal the ending... And spoiler alert for a 100-plus-year-old book, but it's basically the entire story is a hallucination of a guy while he's dying. Um. Oh, speaking of which... No, no, never mind. Repo Say, Man was a terrible movie. Not Repo um, Man, Repo Man. I know, it's, yeah, I saw that. And that, yeah, that's got that thing going on. Ugh. It does at least have a memorable image when they're like reaching inside of each other and pulling out their organs or whatever. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that was kind. Of, that was kind of the scene. That's the only scene I remember oh. from that movie. Ambrose Bierce, yeah. not uh, Stephen Crane. Excuse me. Oh, really? Okay. Stephen Crane did uh, Red Badge of Courage. That's why we're confused. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah. So, for me personally, kind of 
summing things up, I did end up, I liked certain aspects of it. I wanted to see more of the weirdness. Like, you know, if you're going to call it silk punk, I think it really needed a lot more of the strange technology and the airships and the cultural trappings. And we didn't, we got some of it, but not as much as I'd like. And then so much of... Outside of those points, it really still felt like... I don't know. It, it felt like a it, like a Chinese fable. Yeah, because it because it is a Chinese fable. I mean, he's basically what he's he's taking a Chinese fable, changing the names, and throwing in some zeppelins, which that seems kind of mean, but kind of in summation, that's kind of how it felt. I, I was, if you're going to summarize it, you kind of have to be a reductionist. But there you go. Yeah, well, the story's reductionist, so maybe <laughs> I shouldn't feel bad. Um, so I mean, Nathan obviously didn't finish it. I voted with so my you didn't feet. like it. <laughs> um, I don't think it was bad, but I am unlikely to read the other ones. I found some points I liked in it, but I can't think of anyone I know that I I would think would enjoy it enough for me to recommend it to them. Right, that's glowing praise. Sorry. Well, no, I mean, I've, I've thought I thought about it though, and like that's that's kind of like the gold standard for for these podcasts and reviewing books. Is like, would you tell a friend to go and read this book that you just read? And right, I I don't see any a lot in this one that would make me want to go tell someone you've got to go check this out. Yeah, I would say I still enjoyed it more than uh, that Greg Bear one we read. You mean Stephen Baxter? Yes. Yeah, don't. Ouch. You, don't sorry, you Greg dis- Bear. Yeah, you better be sorry. You apologized to Greg Bear right I, now. I just did. I already, I just did. I said I'm sorry. George made Greg Bear sad. <laughs> Greg Bear, yeah, I know you're listening. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean that. I uh, ate a bunch of Domino's and my brain is all clogged with uh, bad quality pepperoni. So we apologize to Domino's Corporation. And <laughs> I do not. I already gave them my money. I'd like to apologize to. Uh, <laughs> Tom Merritt and Veronica Belmont for calling them lizard people. Um, I apologize. No, whatever. I, I, I was going to say I apologize to no one, but I had just apologized to someone, you know, to Greg less Bear. than two minutes previously. So clearly I do apologize to someone. I do not apologize to Stephen Baxter. I enjoyed this one more than your book. We did not. We have recorded that one. We did not. Did no, we? Did, no, we, we didn't did. record that one. We just detailed about it. That was Time Manifold or Ta- something. Manifold, manifold Time. time yeah. Of all the Stephen Baxter books I've read, it is one I did not like. Out of, I guess, one and a half. I I thought we read that one because you'd never read any Stephen Baxter. I later read his, uh, the one he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett, The Long Earth. Oh. That was pretty good. I liked that. I was going to say, there are other Baxter books that I enjoyed, but that was not really Yeah, he's got a good reputation, which is why we read it in the first place. Anyway, George... That was not a good one. George liked this one better than Manifold Time. Long story short. Did you guys? No. Obviously not, Nathan. Uh, I feel like Manifold Time was shorter. Felt it shorter. was. It was shorter. I kind of have nice. I kind of have similar feelings about both of them actually. There were there were some ideas that I thought were interesting and I enjoyed, you know, finding the ideas, but they probably wouldn't be worth wading through the writing for most people. Yeah, I feel you. Do we want to do uh, ratings? Uh, indeed, we do. I have our chart pulled up, which now this is the thirteenth book that we have uh, read, and 
Although it's only, I think, the fifth one we're discussing for the for the podcast releasing. Releasing no, because we're gonna. By the are we putting out the Nosferatu one? Will we're we? Going to. Have we? Have we already done that? By the time people no. are hearing this, no. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, who knows? Anyway, this is one of a number of books that we have read. <laughs> one of a number of books. <laughs> Nathan Edwards, ladies and gentlemen. That is something we can say with certainty. This book. Well, actually, no, we can't because you did not, in fact, read this. Oh, good point. Dang. Okay, so we read three before we started <laughs> recording. We recorded six, and then we've put out. Sorry, we've recorded uh, ten. Now. Oh my god, this is super tedious. Who cares? Yeah, let's, let's just get into readings. it. Okay, bookkeeping aside, George, what would you rate this book? I'm going to give it two eating sticks out of five. No, out of six. Let's say six because you wouldn't have five eating sticks. That's ridiculous. You would be, you know, you need two to eat. I would point out that in this book, eating sticks is what they call chopsticks. Yep, eating sticks. Like, let's just take it and change the name to, you know, something slightly different. Eating sticks. Well, you don't chop things with them that much. You can tell it's not Tolkien because no one's using a fork. And they don't smoke pipe weed. I read a really interesting theory about Tom Bombadil today, um, which we do not have time to get into. Is the theory that Tom Bombadil sucks? No, it's that he's um, a greater evil than Sauron. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Because he just sits there and laughs at everyone? No, uh, I will. We can talk about this later, but it's super interesting. Okay. We might want to talk about it on the Culture Club, actually. It's I, by the same guy who came up with the the concept that the two main heroes of the Rebellion in the original trilogy are R2-D2 and Chewbacca. Which turned out to be true with the... Uh, was this before or after Re- Revenge of the Clones? This was after or... Sith, uh, the f- Episode 3 came out. And oh, basically, well, then, yeah. That's obvious then. Well, it's, it's obvious now that he... Anyway, yes. Peter. The two characters who don't age. Yes, I... I... Peter. Which is my name. Will Are you sure? Give you this sound book uncertain. One out of four giant armored narwhals. Explained nice. Peter, who didn't like the book. <laughs> but loves narwhals. Who doesn't? They're a pretty good whale. Love those little guys. It's true. They're great. And by little, uh, I mean the size of my car. Krubin. And I... Nathan, who got 27% of the way through the book, um, I will give this 27 out of 100 characters explaining things to each other. I am mad at you because you have done this. George is mad at me. I feel shame. Mathematically, Nathan, I think you just gave the book the highest score, even though you didn't finish it. (laughs) He did, actually, yeah. He gave it 27%. No, no, George gave it 33%. Says says the engineer explaining it engineerally. Explaining it wrong engineeringly, because as the tech journalist uh, pointed out... You gave out, it two out of five, which is if Ken 20%. Lou, no, I changed it to six. If Ken Liu listens bad. to this episode, we're going to feel really bad about ourselves. Yeah. Um, Ken Liu, he'll... I I love what you're trying to do. I wanted Maybe to try a little bit harder. Ken Liu, who is listening to this, he's won uh, numerous awards for the Hugo. And I was going to say, it sounds like he's already got a pretty giant pile of awards. He can go and he's, he, cry He's won a Hugo, a Nebula, a World Fantasy Award. He went to Harvard Law School. I don't think this dude is sweating it. Um, he'll be fine if we uh, don't like all the stuff he read. I probably would read some of his short stories to see if they're 
you know, better. Cause I have to imagine that they are, that sounds really mean. I, I feel like something um, more focused would be better from him. Possibly. But I'm I, definitely gonna check I've, out always short really liked, I've always liked short stories though. So that's me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean like, you know what? We're not going to like every book we read. We don't have to, we're not forced to, we shouldn't, that would be weird. It defeats the point of just giving a random book review podcast on the internet. Yeah, then we're just like book shills rather than a book critics, reviewers, lizard, Illuminati people. Whatever we are. We're not shills for the lizard people Illuminati. Make sure you listen to pop music, guys, and a lot of network news. Drink. (laughs) Drink Coke. Drake? Drake Coke? Drink Coke. Did you say drink? Why would, I, drink? why would I say Drake? Drake. Like the rapper from, uh, you know, Degrassi. I, I might have held up there for a minute because I was thinking that you should also drink Pepsi because they're he's definitely a, he's not a sprite. the same thing. Drake's a Sprite spokesperson. Pepsi and okay. Coke are not the same thing. They're very similar things from a, compared to everything else. They're very similar. I, I have compared a, to each I other, have a sneaking suspicion. Different. It's like the two different coffee shops from Deus Ex. No, Pepsi sucks. Coke rules. Let's talk about the next book we're going to read. The next book we're going to read is Peter's Choice. Peter's Choice is, of course, by Peter. That's right. I wrote a it's book. about a man. <laughs> I wrote a book called Peter's Choice. choice. <laughs> uh, which book am I going to read? Uh, and no, in this, in this the story, book is Peter Panic Aurora by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson, who you, who you, writer of such books as... The, as the Mars Trilogy. Red I Mars was going to say Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars... The Years of Rice and Salt, 2312. Did he write Yellow Mars? I think he had one about Antarctica, too. Oh, cool. Was it White Antarctica? I could be wrong. I'm looking forward to this. I have liked a lot of his books. I I really... It had been a long time since I read Kim Stanley Robinson, since I read uh, Blue Mars back in the day. But then I read uh, 2312, and I really enjoyed it. And it kind of reminded me that, hey, this guy's here, and he's pretty all right. I'm going to go first-time caller, first-time listener on this one because uh, I have never read a Kim Stanley Robinson book. But I do remember Peter and a lot of our mutual friends in eighth grade through high school reading the crap out of those Mars books. So I'm excited to finally uh, see what all the buzz is about this Kim Stanley Robinson fellow or KSR, as some say. Well, on that bombshell, I think that's going to bring us lizard people to a close. Unless you guys have any further comments? Of course you don't. I'd like to send myself on a large rock. Oh, well, that's good. Um, as always, you can find us on uh, Twitter, um, email, the web, all sorts of internet places behind you at this moment. I would like to also give a shout out to George, not me, but a different George who sent us a lovely email. The first reader to reach out to us, um, and we appreciate it. It was great. Really made all of our day to hear it. High five, and, George. Uh, yeah, if any, and, and strong, strong work on the name game there. I think that's a really good name to have. And uh, if any of the rest of you would like to reach out and uh, touch us uh, mentally, be assured that we lizard people are doing that to you as we speak. And on that bombshell, I'm uncomfortable. We are, we are as always, lizard, lizard people. people, dear, dear readers. readers, readers, readers. Are we doing that? No, just right. open enough to confuse George. That's that's what we're doing. All right. Okay. Okay. Good night. Good night. This has been Lizard People, Dear Readers, a production of Yellow Sonar Industries. Sound engineering is performed by Matthew Quiet of Podcom Services. 
All music written and performed by Stephen Edwards. Updates and information can be found at lizardpeopledearreaders.com. Contact us on Twitter at drlizardpeople or by email at lizardpeopledearreaders at gmail.com. Very few humans were harmed during the making of this production.